Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thanks so much for lending me your ears, the only non-renewable resource that you've got. And believe me, your time is valuable. So we plan to pack as much in today as we can, educate you and help you grow on your own journey. If you're new here, I know you're gonna get a ton of value. Hope you'll stick all the way through and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur has impressed me through the years with his ability to be a diplomat and translator between technical and lay people, helping folks really dial in their product market fit. His entrepreneurial chops are sure to impress you as they did me, as will his startup stories, but it's actually his keen sense of the direction of the distributed energy industry and where it's going that convinced me he needs to be on Suncast. From pizza.com to rooftop solar, Jeff Weiss has pioneered innovation across multiple sectors. And today you're going to get a glean into his insights and hopefully add them to your toolkit. If you do like what you hear, be sure you subscribe to the show so that you won't miss out on the twice weekly episodes just like this one. Of course, You can always check out the catalog of nearly 400 episodes with additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you'd write a quick review so that others can find Suncast just like you did. It takes two minutes and it would truly mean the world to me. We're at 94 ratings right now. Can you help us get to 100? And lastly, make sure you listen all the way through as some of the very best parts of this interview and my takeaways come at the end of the hour. I also take time to thank a few listeners who've reviewed the show recently. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Jeff Weiss, as I said, was an early e-business and online media entrepreneur. He's advised dozens of companies through significant changes, been a board member, investor, banking advisor, strategy consultant. He's watched substantial money flow into and out of technology over the last three decades. He co-founded Distributed Sun in 2009, but we actually didn't officially meet until December of 2020, when as a Cornell University grad, Jeff participated in an energy storage panel that yours truly moderated, and he left me wanting to know more of his story. Jeff, you have whether you know you kind of look at your back your background and career this way or not, I kind of look at what you've done and think, man, what a storied career. I wonder what the genesis of his you know his ideas, his entrepreneurial spirit could be. Did you have a job in high school? You want to like like I you know bust tables and many others had to make their way through high school to pay for the car or insurance, or whatever. Did you have anything like that that was your hustle? I did have a job in high school. I worked at a camera store. I was an avid photographer. I, I uh, shot a lot of pictures and was the editor, photography editor of the yearbook. So I worked in the camera store locally in Highland Park, Illinois. And in the camera store, my job was to take the film in and alphabetize it and get it ready for the customers to, to 
give them their pictures back. What I particularly enjoyed uh, was the Christmas season. Christmas season was a very, very busy season. And during that season, they allowed me to do everything, which included selling cameras. So what was a lot of fun for me, Nico, is people would walk in the door of the store and I would see them coming at me. And in my own mind, I would say, ah, that person's buying a Christmas present for their child and they're going to buy a camera. And we had all the cameras. We had the Nikons, we had the Pentaxes, we had the Rollies, we had the Minolta's. And what I did, because it was frankly somewhat amusing to me, is I decided when the person walked in the door, what brand I was intending to sell them. Because I was a little bit cynical. And from my point of view, all the cameras had the same features. So I would take them all out and put them on the counter. And I would talk to the customer and I would uh, tell them uh, the benefits of all the cameras. But I would see if I could lead them to buy one particular brand. So for me, that was how I got my jollies in high school. um, And it was really my first job. That is cool. Developing that, uh, that ability to lead. And I'm, I'm certain that that skill, not only the, the skill to explain the technical detail, but to guide someone to the conclusion that you want them to have, but that they feel like they chose has served you in many ways. As I look back over the arc of your career, it's often hard to weave a thread through a career and say, uh, this is the through line, uh, but sometimes you can block it into you know, core skills you learned or maybe what industries you served. How do you think about the building blocks of your career? Well, that's a great question. So if I look back over a couple of decades, I've repeatedly been an innovator at times of industry change. Well, that sounds broad. What it really means is I keep going into industries or markets that are not ready for prime time. They're a bit early and it takes a combination of the team and the technology and the product and the markets and sometimes the regulation and the law uh, to all come together. So specifically, you know, I ran a business-to-business online exchange in the 1980s. You know, 15 years before the internet, there were B2B online exchanges. There were none, but we created one uh, for certificates of deposit. In the 1990s, there was no market for digital photography. Digitizing pictures didn't exist yet. Um, We got worldwide rights to a million fabulous images, the best images. We converted them to digital files and opened a store on the internet the very first day that the Netscape browser was available to the public, November 1st, 1995, full e-commerce service. So as I've gone through, um, you know, those are examples of being early, of of having, not surprisingly, therefore, a lot of scar tissue from being early to market and having to create things. It's, It's expensive to create things. Our first storage device in online uh, photography, we had to store those million pictures and we needed a terabyte of storage. That storage device cost me $525,000 and it was uh, bigger than many rooms. It needed to be air conditioned 24 hours a day. And to put it into the building that we were installing it in, we needed to hire a crane, take a window out of the building. And you can buy that same amount of storage for 20 bucks today at Best Buy. Oh my gosh. It, how, what, what was the size? A terabyte. One terabyte. Oh my God. <laughs> That's insane. I yeah, remember. You can buy that, on the, that, that fits on a thumb drive. That's really crazy. I mean, you've watched technology scale uh, in ways that, you know, many listeners, potentially many listeners have, but you've been seeing it from the inside. It actually led me to think about how, how did you intuit the need for, where did the idea come from, the need for an online photo store and also the timing of the launch? 
Well, it's a great question. And some, sometimes things are broad. And, I'd like to say things are broad and strategic, but in this case, it's not. So I, I, I met a couple of guys who were longtime National Geographic photographers. So as photographers, they were at the peak of their career. And we were talking about what they did every day. And their, their, their job was they got assignments from National Geographic, the top print, the top magazine for beautiful photo reportage. And they would literally go around the world on assignment taking fabulous pictures. And every time they did that, they'd shoot 30 or 40,000 pictures and 10 would be published in the magazine. Well, what happens to all the rest? So the bottom line is they make their living through two ways. Number one, they got paid a day rate when they went out for geographic. And number two, they made money off the residuals of their photography. And the way they made money on residuals is through an industry called stock photography. So they had agents who were, in, who were human beings who worked in agencies who would provide the pictures to books and magazines and advertising agencies, et cetera. And they would do that by flipping through the physical pictures and sending them through Federal Express for people to look at. It took days or weeks. We called that a Byzantine business process. And we, wouldn't, we said, wouldn't it be better if you could do that in five mouse clicks? And there was no such thing as mouse clicks when we said that. Um, but we did it. We, we put them online. We created the search engine. We created the software to license the photography and allow them to be distributed online. The other cool thing is there was no market for digital photography. So there was only a market for print photography. All photographs got printed in a book, in a magazine, in an annual report. The, every, everything was glossy publications. So what we did with those million photographers is we said, well, we'll get a small cut of any traditional sales, print sales, but we'll get a very large cut of any digital sales. And they said, fine, what's that? They said, fine, what are digital sales? So we were able to get a large, exclusive worldwide rights to their digital um, markets because, quite frankly, the markets didn't exist. There was, and, and, and today that seems unbelievable because today 100% of the photography market is online. The use and, and diffusion of photography is astronomical. We all speak in, in photographs and we all enjoy them and share them, but this just was not the case. Yeah, this is you know, way before Flickr, way before deposit photos or drop bucket. Uh, goodness gracious. And this was called Picture, Picture Network, right? Picture Network International. Yep. So if the uh, 80s were B2B exchange, the 90s were uh, digital photography, what did the 2000s look like? So the 2000s are being a, a, um, an investor, being an angel investor, being a board member of a lot of companies and being a strategic advisor to small and large companies. Um, so, so it was basically having a portfolio and casting, casting uh, wider. One of the things I did, in, I, I went deep in one company in the 1990s where we, um, we, we, we had a, a, a corporate fraud intelligence service, which doesn't necessarily string directly to right, B2B exchanges for financial instruments and online photography. Um, but it turned out it was very cool. Um, and we had a product uh, which, was, uh, which were very, very high-end blast blinds. So if you were in a building and a bomb went off outside the building, they would snap shut and save your life. Um, so it's a very expensive and very important product. So we, we, ma we married physical building security with corporate fraud intelligence. You also have the distinction, I, I will give you this distinction, of coolest title on LinkedIn, just because I'm a huge fan of the product. You were the CEO of pizza.com. What did you learn? What, was it, what were some of the things that you've learned uh, from starting the first pizza, online pizza ordering system 
that, uh, that help you and entrepreneurs you advise today? So it's actually, I'm glad you asked, and, it, and, and it's a great story because um, that was at the height of the online B2B marketplaces, right? It was before the NASDAQ crashed. It was every, the, the idea was you could literally flip through the yellow pages and close your eyes and point your finger and any topic could become a B2B exchange. That's what people thought. Everything was ready to go online. It was really exciting. Um, and uh, we had the URL, pizza.com. That's a cool URL. And everyone kind of everyone gets it. It's, it's ubiquitous. And we came up with the tagline, surf, order, eat. The business failed and didn't work out. So, so it's interesting to know um, why it failed. Uh, because, um, and, and, and it's because of the uh, disconnection between technology and usability and, and the markets at the time. So if you think back uh, to the year 2000, what we had to do to do surf, order, eat is we had to get the local uh, pizza shop very close to wherever you live uh, to be able to be on the internet and to receive the order. So it's, it's fine to have the World Wide Web, but actual hot, delicious pizzas have to be delivered in your neighborhood, right? That's got to come from a, an oven very near your home and someone gets in a car and takes it to you. That's how all pizza delivery works. It's very, very, very local. And it turns out, not surprisingly, in retrospect, the, all the pizza stores in the entire country were dealing with telephone systems, right? They had, almost none, none of them had either the internet or computers. They did not have the internet and they did not have computers. So we wanted to go in and be disruptive, but it was way too early to give them or to force them to have either the internet or computers because frankly, the telephone worked great for them. They had caller ID. They'd know it was Nico calling. They already knew from caller ID and their system what your address was, and they would just uh, process your order and deliver it to you 30 minutes later. Well, what you are a, a little bit alluding to is this tendency as serial entrepreneurs sometimes, and we see this in the clean energy space, to get ahead of our skis, to come up with brilliant ideas that the market that are going to work, just not tomorrow. And we have to do a little bit of discovery. What about product market fit through the various iterations of companies that you've been able to enjoy, uh, either as executive or advisor, do you find most instructive for an entrepreneur? Like when, if you're talking to someone as an advisor, how do you help them wrap their head around the most important pieces of product market fit where they might, where, they, where you already know they're probably not seeing it? So most people are enthusiastic about what they're enthusiastic about. Right, so they've got a product, they've got a market idea, they've got something. They're just enthusiastic about it, and 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 by the way, enthusiasm is critical. You know, because you're going to have a lot of sleepless nights being an entrepreneur, and you have to be enthusiastic, and you have to want to do that. But there's a lot of steps to actually making a company, and enthusiasm is necessary but not sufficient. Um, so the thing that I like to do is to talk about imagining where you want to be three years from now. Right. And, 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 and that's an intentional amount of time. It's not six months from now. It's not 10 years from now. 10 years from now, it's impossible. That's way too conceptual. Six months is too tactical. So you pick three years from now. And usually that'll bring a smile to someone's face to say, oh, wow, I'm going to be very successful. And X, Y, and Z will have happened because it's three years from now. So obviously I'll have solved a lot of problems that are right in front of my nose right now. But what's interesting is if you imagine where you want to be three years from now, uh, then you can also talk about in some detail the steps it took you to get there. And it's fun to talk about it in the past tense, even though it's in the future. So it's now three years from now, you were very successful. What steps did it take uh, to get you there, 
right? What obstacles did you overcome? What resources did you need, whether it's money or otherwise? Who's on your team? Where did they come from? What are their skills, right? What does your cap stack look like? What technology do you use, right? These always use technology. What is your product or your service, right? How is it defined? What is it? Because it's, and it's probably different than whatever they're, and that's a fun and long conversation because that's almost always different than whatever they think they're doing right now. And you can poke at it. Um, what market are you serving? And then being relentless about quantifying it, you know, because you can go down three levels under any of those. So what does that mean? Uh, what's the data? What's the outcome? Quantify, quantify, quantify. I love that detail. Uh, I want to let it sink in for those who are still trying to scribble down notes, because that is just podcast gold right there, Jeff. Uh, the, the exercise of looking back from three years in the future is one that I've found very instructive and that I use as well with my coaching clients. Because often, you know, Tony Robbins says that we are often, um, we often overestimate what we can achieve in a year and we underestimate what we can achieve in three. And that exercise allows you, as you said, to really break it down in chunks. I think that actually one of the biggest problems that aspirational architect style entrepreneurs have is that ability to break it down into chunks. And that's where someone like you as an advisor can come in and say, well, what about this? Well, how about this? And how do you block that? And who's, who's going to tackle you know, this problem? There was a marketing structure or marketing technology that came along 20 years ago now called Personify. And the idea of Personify is something I talk to um, my teams and, and to entrepreneurs about. Um, so Personify is all about the maxim that the customer gives the party. Um, right. So all business is not about um, what you're making. It's not about your software. It's not about your solar panels. It's not about your electricity. It's about the customer and who the customer is. Well, knowing the customer and defining the customer is actually really important and complicated. Um, and then figuring out how to address uh, them, the customer and the customers where they are in their language and from their point of view is absolutely critical. And person personify marketing is all about that. Jeff, what career path did you not go down, but maybe always thought that you would? Um, the career path I didn't go down was um, being consistent. Um, so I never thought that I would do so many different things and not stick to, stick to knitting, right? So for me, I thought I would do something for a long time. And I've done things for five or 10 years, but I, I haven't done any one thing for a long, long time. So I never thought I would wander through so many markets and industries. Um, but for me, um, for me, the fun is um, being an innovator at the time of industry change, right? So that's the th that for me has end up, ended up being my through line. I identify in a lot of ways with, you know, the, that feeling of wandering uh, and being able to build on those skills. When we had our first chance to really get to know one another, I was fascinated about how your advisory and investment led to, in a world where you can invest in any sector, why clean energy and how did Distributed Sun come about? So would you tell that story? Sure. So Chase Weir and I started the company together in 2009, and we had met a year or two before that at the Aspen Institute. And it sometimes happens when you're in a fun and interesting place, you meet a cool person and you uh, begin to engage and be friends. He was ahead, way ahead of me in thinking about a renewable energy business plan. And over some time, we started batting back and forth a lot of business plans. As sometimes happens when you do that, it gets to the point of, wouldn't this be cool? We should start X. We should start the company. 
And my perspective uh, was, what are you nuts? The stock market just crashed. Anyone who used to have a dollar has less than a dollar and the cost of capital just skyrocketed. So just generically, who would start a business now, meaning them? Um, but the more we looked at um, what was our starting point, uh, which is not specifically what we're doing now, but, but it was our starting point, which is rooftop CNI uh, solar up and down the I-95 corridor on, on the East Coast. Uh, what I grew to realize and appreciate is it was the only investment that I could find that I knew about where you would know the return on investment before you wrote the check. So from a capital markets perspective, that's really cool because the capital markets are relentless. And what else can you do that you would know the return on investment before you write the check? Why did you know it? Uh, because before you buy anything, uh, you've, got your, you, you've got your power purchase agreement. Thank you, Jigger. Uh, you've got your um, tax structure. You know what the tax equity is. You know what you're thinking, thinking your debt is. Um, and you know what all the tax deductions are. So between big picture of the cash flows and the tax structure, uh, you know what your return on investment is going to be. Um, so we jumped in. We raised friends and family money. We raised a small fund. Um, and our first fund was a 32% return on investment, IRR. Um, so that, that which I just said uh, ended up being true uh, in the start of Distributed Sun. As I understand, you're the first investor along, uh, alongside Chase. Were you an operator or just sort of advising Chase on how to get the business off the ground while you did other things? Initially, my idea was to be an advisor and an investor. And that evolved over a couple of years to um, being very full-time. Yeah. Uh, I remember you got a chance to, maybe one of the reasons um, for the great return uh, in that early fund was the nature of the rec market, renewable energy credits in the Northeast at the time. We're talking for those who aren't familiar, uh, 2009, 2012. How has fluctuation in the regulatory environment uh, and even just the, you know, the different financial tools available informed the way that Distributed Sun has been able to grow or, or how you've thought about finding the pathway that is your unique advantage in the market? Well, it, it affects it totally. So, so anything that anyone knew about solar yesterday is not true today, uh, literally over the last uh, decade, decade and a half, meaning we're in a constant, which is what you're teasing out, we're in a constantly changing world. Um, and the only thing that ultimately matters and the reason solar plants get built uh, is because they pencil, right? What's really cool is that no matter what you're interested in, whether it's the climate crisis or the need for renewables or the demand for infrastructure, if you're an energy justice person, if you're into ESG goals, or if you want all the jobs that all is creating, no matter what you're trying to maximize, right? It's all capital markets activity. Um, nothing in the infrastructure business gets built if it doesn't pencil, right? And one of the things that I think Distributed Sun realized early on is that everything must pencil, everything must model, and you need to know in advance what the outcome is. And what you're pointing out is that's a very local game, right? So the blocking and tackling of what makes a project pencil, first of all, is different from year to year, is different from market to market, is different from state to state. Um, and the structures of renewable energy credits, the structure of rates, uh, the structure of net metering, all the structures, how you permit, how you interconnect, how you bill and sell the customers, everything about that, there is no one rule. There's, and everyone in the solar world knows this, there's many, many, many rules. And you've got to be micro-local to get a project to pencil. 
it has to be right there in that zip code on that piece of land or on that rooftop. It's often compared with real estate and with a good reason. I had a mentor who liked to say solar is real estate, but without the occupancy risk. Uh, I'd love your view on this uh, because you specifically said to me before that your job is creating long duration, low risk cash flows. Uh, how do you see a solar asset different fundamentally from real estate? Well, it's fundamentally different in two major reasons. You just mentioned one, we don't have the occupancy risk, but the second reason is we don't have the exit and they do. So it's a very weird investment from that point of view. When you, when, if, you're gonna, if you and I are going to build an office building or a hotel or multifamily together, we're going to have a plan which, yes, has occupancy and yes, we're, it's infrastructure. So we have to build the whole thing and finance the whole thing up front. And then we're going to have occupancy and rates and all that. But we're going to put in our plan, in our investment plan, that we're going to exit at some point, right? So we're, so, and that's all about cap rates and that's critical and that's, that's, that's market 101 to the real estate industry. We don't have that in the solar industry. So we're, we're also an infrastructure business. You have, to put, you have to invest all the money in order to turn it on and go COD and, 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 and be selling uh, electricity in whatever the market is that you're selling it. You get all the return in solar, right, from the RECs, from the cash flows, and from the tax structure. And the long-term monetization of, from flipping is, is a very, very, very small portion compared to the way you think about the way it's thought about in real estate. Yeah, I- including uh, the idea of scrap value, which I remember we used to carry in our financial models, that there was some asset value for the residual of the, of the equipment. And I'm not convinced right. there is. Not convinced there is. At least not that the banks will agree on. <laughs> If you're convinced, I'll sell you a used solar panel. That's right. <laughs> My friend Sam Vanderhoof will too. <laughs> what do you think as you've been really digging into for the last you know, decade plus, how the industry is evolving? What do you see as the number one headache clean energy entrepreneurs face over the next decade where solar plus is a requirement? So I'm glad you brought up solar plus because the great thing about solar by itself um, is that it's an old school technology today. So the reason we're doing the gigawatts we're all doing um, is because it pencils, it banks. There, the, the summary is the market doesn't view there as being a technology risk. The technology is getting better every year uh, and it's getting less expensive every year. So that's a lovely thing to happen in a maturing uh, market. The problems we have are not with our technology. The problems we have are with the utilities with the regulators and the states, um, and 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 that's the grist that um, that we're all that we all deal with. So as the technology improves, what happens is we an element of improving it is the solar plus, solar plus storage, which is obviously very important um, to capacity markets. So in the way that electricity works and in the way that solar works, they're not aligned, right? Electricity is used twenty four hours of the day. Solar, solar is available when the sun is shining, right? The sun does not shine 24 hours a day. So it makes a lot of sense that there's a lot of solar plus happening, right? It's, it, it, and the solar plus is, will help us move to being the 24-hour baseline product. But just like when solar panels came along, they were 20 years ago, risky and costly products. The plus portions and they're not as bad as solar panels were 20 years ago by any means, and many of them pencil today, they have to be de-risked and they have to pencil, right? Pure and simple. Once they're de-risked and, they're pen- and they pencil, we're selling gazillions of them. Help us understand 
by way of, I'm going to ask a question that I hope will inform a bit of where Distributed Sun fits in the market, how you differentiate, but what's driving your investment thesis as a business, as an executive and entrepreneur? There's a value chain in every industry. And over the 12 years since 2009 that we've been doing this, we've actually played in the entire value chain, meaning we started from hello, would you like solar on your roof, ma'am, to completing all the development process with that, uh, to uh, turning it on and energizing it, to sending bills out, to managing it, to managing the customer and managing uh, the billing cycle and managing the energy, and then to getting to flip and flipping projects uh, and monetizing them and selling them. And being and so, so we've managed the entire life cycle of what one does. Over time, um, we, we learned a lot from doing all that. We are very focused today at Distributed Sun on being in the development phase, right? So we go from hello to NTP. We help manage from NTP to COD. Um, and that, and, and that's, our, that's our niche or our, or our station. It's the niche that most of the finance people in the capital markets hate. They only want to see a project when what, we have, what, what I said we are doing is done. Um, they, the, the, the finance part of the markets generally don't have patience for development. And furthermore, development is risky. There's a lot that can go wrong. The utilities can do the wrong thing. The municipalities can do the wrong thing. Um, the environmental issues can do the wrong thing. There's a lot that can go wrong. Um, and so, so we take it from hello through uh, the NTP and COD part of the process. And we're very focused on that. Our team is terrific at it, right? We're deep practitioners in reducing risk, managing partners, and knitting parties together with competing interests. Part of that is about, Nico, the way the capital markets have, have aligned. So the capital markets um, have infinite capital supporting renewable infrastructure investments, Right. Everybody wants it. It's for the reasons I stated earlier. Right. People want renewables. They want infrastructure. They want energy justice. They want ESG. The markets want all those things. We have to solve our massive climate crisis uh, that our new president is, is um, uh, fabulously supporting. But in order to do all that, the table stakes are capital. And the great thing is because um, it's so important, there's an abundance of capital supporting renewable infrastructure investments. And the cost of capital and the cost of construction, quite frankly, have come down a lot and continue to, and renewables are ascendant. So for everybody listening, you can't be all things to all people, right? So there's a lot of positions in this. You can be a manufacturer, you can be an EPC and an installer, you can be an infrastructure investor, you can be a tax equity investor, right? You can be a, a, a manager of contracts and cash flows, you can be uh, many, many things. Um, but it's uh, the the industry has become big enough that it's gone from the from the uh, the two gals in a truck getting a lot of projects to needing um, some sophistication. Hey, I've got a quick question for you. Did you ever think, man, I wish I could just text Nico? I have a question for him. Hey, Nico, where is your favorite Thai restaurant in Durham? Hey, Nico, what are the flight prices to Mexico City right now? Hey, Nico, where are you going to be staying in New Orleans this year for North America Smart Energy Week? If any of those questions have occurred to you or some other thing that you'd like to chat with me about, why don't you text me at 310-634-1780? 
I'm running a little test to see if I can actually get you as a listener to respond. So there you go. That's my number, 310-634-1780. Shoot me a text message. I'd like to know if you're going to North America Smart Energy Week 2021 in New Orleans. I'm going to be there. So why don't you take this opportunity to text 310-634-1780 and let me know. Nico, I'm going. Or Nico, you're crazy. Why in the heck would I be in New Orleans? We're still in a pandemic. Either way, I love you and I hope to see you there. And I hope that you'll text me. That number, again, is right there in your podcast player description if you click on it. Hey, you're listening to Suncast, so I know that you are a thinker who likes to seek out the opinions of others to help inform and guide your own path. And as such, you probably like to debate or at least like to watch interesting debates. Did you miss out May 26th when we had our first session of the Great Debate Series 2021, The Road to New Orleans, that we're co-hosting with Solar Power Events and my friend Tor Solar Fred Valenza? If so, fear not. Just go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate. There you can watch a riveting debate that we had on the different types of solar financing and which is best for consumer and installer. PPA, PACE, loans, you be the judge. Also, join us for the next installments. We'll have one in June, another in July, August, and live in September. I hope that you'll join us. I hope that you will go to mysuncast.com forward slash debate and learn more about the upcoming debates. If you'd like to partner with us on producing the Great Debate Series, please feel free to reach out. You've probably just heard the other information about how you could text me or you could email me nico at mysuncast.com is there anything that you feel is still about development that is still from the outside looking in perhaps nebulous that it feels squishy but from like from the inside looking out i guess the question i'm trying to get to that i want to i'll back up thirty thousand. we'll talk about it there's two questions i want to talk about the first is i want to get or the second is uh energy storage i want to talk a bit about your thoughts on energy storage, but I, I kind of want to get your insight on where the hard parts are for development to the extent that you can share without sharing trade secrets, like things that people don't realize are hard or that you see people that you're perhaps helping people with. Um, but in a way that adds value to what you do, what would, what would a good question for that be? What's hard in development is knowing where to invest your time and money to develop. And it seems from the most conceptual level, that there's a lot of land and there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of need at, at the state level based on, on on the desire to solve the climate crisis and have renewables um, and reduce green, greenhouse gas emissions, which are thing which are goals that are conceptual. But there's a big gap between the conceptual of doing that and the specific of doing it at a particular address and on a particular piece of land. And every address and every piece of land is different. They have different owners and the owners have different values that are important to them and to their families. And they're often um, in farming communities and they have deep and abiding values and desires for their land, which is very personal. Uh, Towns and communities have huge sets of values as to what's important to them. Um, You know, the, the, the decade of solar and the era of solar is still new um, in many, in most rural places. Um, so the good thing from the community's point of view is it's a, a new business coming to town. It's a new resource. It's, it's bringing stuff in. It's bringing jobs. It's bringing renewables. But there's also a lot of fear. Um, and there's always fear when something new comes in. What's it going to do? What's it going to look like? What if it's across the road from me? What's the impact? 
So you have to really figure all of that out. Uh, and then the other huge, huge, huge constraint are the utilities, right? So the utilities by law, generally speaking, have to interact with the solar developers. And that's good. There's laws and structures as to how they do that. But how they actually do it is not necessarily how the law says they should do it um, because they don't want to make mistakes. They're required by law to provide a resilient, reliable, clean, affordable uh, electricity to all the customers, right? So you're coming in as the solar person for a set of customers, not for all the customers. And you're asking to interconnect with their network and their grid. And it's logical that that's disruptive to them. And it has to be done in a way that's helpful and not hurtful from a resilience and reliability point of view. Uh, and because many of the folks who are the engineers at the utilities don't have much experience or technical knowledge as to how this works, we're experiencing as an industry a lot of growth pains in interconnection. Many developers feel, or many, many developers act in an adversarial way with the utilities. They just want to get their development done. Utilities have to give them, um, have to allow them to interconnect and provide um, a cost to do that, and it's a black box. Distributed Sun has chosen uh, to be a partner with the utilities. We did that largely because at, when we were first starting to develop and build megawatt-scale facilities, quite often we were the first project of that size the utility had ever met, right? So it's a little bit like being in middle school together, and we had to say, well, hello, and how are we going to get along uh, in doing this? Because there were rules, but the rules were very poorly formed. So we chose to be a partner as, we, as much as we can with the utilities and, and to work on it together. And, and, and over the decade, as the utilities have encountered and expressed, um, quite frankly, real technical issues, um, what we do is we don't shy from them. We jump in and say, well, let's work on that together. Is there anything about the way that you've built your team or the core expertise or experience that you look for that helps to facilitate that, that you see perhaps missing in other companies? Well, we've built our team by having fabulous people. So caring people, people that are team players, people that like one another, people that, you know, get up in the morning and just want to get stuff done. I don't like politics. Um, I don't like water cooler stuff. I just like, and, and I think our team likes just jumping in and working together. And given the range of third parties that we all deal with, again, whether it's the land people or the environmental people or the um, social justice people or the towns and the town hall issues or the um, utilities and how you do interconnection and the capital markets. Uh, we have so many different personas of, inter of folks that we interact with that you've got to wake up in the morning and say, I'm just going to jump in and work on this. Jeff, we talked about solar plus. I mentioned that uh, we got to know each other on an energy storage panel and it's evident that the next decade is not going to be possible without energy storage. But I'd like to see from your perspective, what do you think is critical in the coming years for the energy storage market to thrive? So storage is critical to the long-term success of the renewable energy industry because the, the uh, power that we create is intermittent and the power that's needed and the way the grid works is 24 by 7. And at the moment, they're not perfectly fitted together. The challenge that we have in storage is storage is a word, but it's not any one technology. It's many technologies. It comes in big, medium, and small. It's in your pocket on your iPhone, or it's in a field, or it's at the utility. There's no, it, it isn't any one thing, which um, has been written about a lot and discovered. But what I'm very excited about is I 
I continue to read about uh, whatever new uh, technologies, new technologies keep popping up in segments of the market. So there, it's all about segmentation, um, and it's all about finding how the technology is married to uh, what the market is, is needs and does. Um, the states that have had deployment of solar are the ones uh, that have leaned forward with regulatory policies, right? So, so, so time of time of use. Uh, differences uh, in rates is really important. So if you have a flat rate for electricity, you're not going to have a storage market. If you have a different rate at different times of the day, that's going to create a market for storage because the owners of the um, infrastructure are going to want to sell it when the price is higher. So if you create a market, the market drives uh, the adoption of the technology. So going back to our earlier conversation about you know going forward three years and, and then looking back, I think there'll be a lot of storage. It won't be um, all storage, everything stored all the time in utility or large commercial scale, but there's going to be vast deployment of storage in the next three years because the technologies and the markets are lining um, to get in front of that. What states should I be looking at for insights into where and how storage policy might be driving more adoption? Storage policies are different in each of the states. And there isn't yet a harmony uh, amongst them. But I'd start um, by looking at uh, California, which is the ground zero for uh, storage adoption. And then I'd judge every state by, well, how close are they to making it as easy and lucrative as what's going on in California? Oh, really interesting. I mean, it seems like a lot of storage is going in in New York. A lot of other, I think a lot of other markets are starting to pilot storage. Hopefully, Texas. (laughs) I think we're seeing a lot of storage go in uh, as... Uh, there could be a need for storage in Texas. I'm, I heard about that. Yeah, just a little rumor. Little rumor. Thankfully, our friends at CBS Energy uh, included it in their RFP and have prioritized amplifying it in what they actually, I think, are going to end up awarding. We'll see. Uh, well, it's a, there's a lot to to learn, and uh, I'd love to know. You you do you mentioned that you read a lot. Where do you stay abreast of what's happening in the industry? Where do you find that you get the most bang for your buck on? What's kind of your technical insights or even your market insights? Oh, um, Suncast Media, of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, the first, it's the first place I tune in. Thankfully, I could take that compliment, but, but we're not an analyst firm or a news a news channel. I'm actually curious, like if there's a blog or uh, a, you know a newsletter that you subscribe to that is a regular place that you feed, like a trough that you feed in. I read Solar Wake Up Call every morning, and I read uh, Canary Media's feed every morning. So actually, I read those two before I read the newspapers. John will be uh, will be happy to know that. So will Eric. <laughs> the other, I mean, it was great. I try to read everything that Norton Rose writes. It's it's long form and 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 very well um, presented. Do you listen to their Currents podcast? I do not. As several of our uh, guests and also uh, friends of the of this show have uh, been on that show as well, and they do get really into the you know policy side and break it down very well. And that's a great uh, recommendation, uh, Norton Rose. Keith Martin's an old friend, so I should. Talk to him about that. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, Keith, uh, I'm sure that there are folks that have had uh, some sort of impact or indelible, left an indelible mark on your career. As you think back on mentors, uh, are there any key lessons or takeaways for you that, that have had an impact on your career or that you pass along to others now? So I guess I'll mention too, you know, when I was doing the online exchange for financial instruments in the 1980s, um, I was doing that because I worked for a one-man family office who, um, whose money it was and who was the entrepreneur, and I was in my 20s. 
Um, and what was really incredible to me is he looked at me and he said, here's what we're doing, do it, right? So he gave me a lot of runway and a lot of leash and told me that he trusted me and wanted me to do it. And it's a great way to learn because you either drown or you learn. Um, and through lots of conversation, the man's name was Harvey Baskin and through, the, through the, a lot of great time with Harvey, um, I had an opportunity to learn a lot. Um, one story, he, he had a very large amount of money. Um, he asked me to manage it for him. The part that I was managing was based in Bermuda. And the first day that he wanted me to manage it, he told me, this is the trade. So I didn't have to make it up. It was a couple million dollars. And, and he told me what to do with it. And he gave me a phone number in Bermuda and the, man, the name of a person who would answer the phone. And I was supposed to tell that person what the trade is. We had never met. We had no paperwork, no signature cards, no nothing. So I called this man in Bermuda. I said, hey, I'm Jeff. I work for Harvey. And here's the trade. And I described it to him. And he said, okay. And he did it. And we started doing a lot like that. And this is just based on trust and that I seemed to know what I was talking about. It was kind of weird for me. And about two years into it, for a bunch of business reasons, I had to go to Bermuda and we had a meeting about a bunch of things. So I went to Bermuda, and as happens when you're going on a business trip like that, you, you get there the night before and you have dinner. So we had a nice dinner, and we just laughed about the level of trust, that clearly I was working for Harvey, and I, he did want me to do these trades, but we had done so much trading together in all those years, and I, I'm nothing more than voice and trust. That is amazing. Um, and Harvey didn't call on the first one and say, hey, this is Jeff. You know, you, Jeff's he my man. He was not on the telephone. That's amazing. He was not on the telephone. He just told me, call this guy and, and tell him what the trade is. The second is, is I had an opportunity in the 90s to spend a lot of time with John Scully and to watch him every year or more for, for a whole bunch of reasons from in the early uh, Apple computer days um, and, and beyond Apple computer for John. And what fascinated me about John is I would watch, John was very well known at the time I knew him and was meeting him. And I would watch John walk into a room of people who he otherwise knew, and he would kind of clap his hands together and people would surround him and they, they'd want to know what he was thinking, like what's up right now. What was fascinating to me is every time, and it was every year, it was a different thing. So in other words, John was a great spinmeister and he was very good at promoting a product or a service. And, it, and each year he had a different one that he was promoting. But I, I learned a lot because he was so focused. Forget about what I told you last year. This is what we're talking about today. And he would get his point across. He would close, he would close the sale. And it was really impressive and fun to watch John Scully in those days. That's fantastic. I mean, one of the great business people of our time, uh, PepsiCo, Apple, uh, just such a Silicon Valley uh, legend in many ways. That's fantastic that you actually got to. And, except he really lived in New York and in Maine. And he had what, in, in addition, and he went back and forth and, and, and to the West Coast. And he had something that many listeners will remember from the earlier days of technology called a PDA. And a PDA, m most people will smile as you are, and they'll think of the PDA as a small device about the size of a telephone. That's not what John's PDA was. It was his personal destination assistant, otherwise known as his airplane. He had, that's amazing. He had an airplane. His PDA is airplane. Yeah. Wow. That's really. It made, us, it made his life a lot easier. That is so, so interesting. I've heard stories of how a mentor to Tony Robbins basically convinced him to buy his first plane when he talked about how, uh, how much more business he could get done or how much, how much 
less stress he would have waiting in the airport, all the things, right? Uh, PDA, I'll never Very forget that. Very cost-effective. Personal destination assistant. I like that. Well, you know, Jeff, uh, I, it's, it, we, could, we could sit here and talk for hours about all the successes. I'm curious about uh, not just the successes. Obviously, pizza.com pizza didn't work. Um, you've got a, a litany of other opportunities that you've invested in. Is there anything that consistently for you, can you looking back, has been a, a road marker where you go, oh, I've seen this before. I should probably start to try to pivot. Like it's sort of uh, things that, do, that don't point to success and maybe that you've seen in your past or that you consistently see in entrepreneurs that you hold up that red flag and say, guys, this is, like, I've seen this before. Watch out. Entrepreneurs always wait until it's too late because they're optimists by nature. But as opposed to waiting for the market, knowing it's too late, um, the thing that I've learned uh, the hard way in some instances uh, is to understand what your partners want and what their values are. So early in one's career, one tends to um, want to take money from or partner with anyone who wants to help you, right? You kind of need that. If you have the capital they need and everyone needs uh, help uh, along the way, um, and when a partner comes along or an investor, you're, that's fantastic. Let's close. Um, but I've got numbers of experience where, you know, you have to have the right partner and you have to have values that are aligned because the truth is when you get into it, um, it, it's, it, it's a lot of work in the scrum. It's a lot of work in the scrum. And, 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 and that's when you're going to really learn, um, how things are working out. Um, I had a company we sold way too early. We didn't make as much money. We sold it too early. Why did we sell it? Because the strategic investor and the VCs, who I had brought in both, different, different organizations, were at each other's throats. Okay, it had nothing to do with the, with the company or its product. It had to do with their personalities and, and their egos. Um, and when large investors are at one another's throats, the only thing you can do is get out. Aligning values is really important and knowing who your partners are. I always love to ask you when we chat, what's on your nightstand because you are you have such a fascinating reading habit uh, and any listener of Suncast knows that I ask what's what, what are you reading or what's influenced you but I'm wondering what's on your nightstand now and what are you learning from it so I just finished a book by by uh, Robert Blake on Disraeli um, so Disraeli is one of the best known prime ministers in England from the 1800s he was um, Queen Victoria's apparently favorite prime minister. Um, she was the famous queen through all of the 1800s. She lived a very, very long line and had a, and had a fabulous life. But it turns out he was only prime minister uh, for six years. Um, he was in, um, in office um, for a couple of decades. But what's really fascinating about the book is to, is to understand who the man was and what made him tick and, and how things worked. And you know, when you look in history and you say, my God, that guy was Queen Victoria's prime minister and everything in the 1870s was so cool. And where did he come from? It turned out none of that happened until he was about 50 years old, right? So like what happened from, from birth to 50? There was a whole lot of his life. Um, many, many of your listeners are probably not 50 yet. So they good. There's hope ahead. There's hope ahead for me. I can be prime minister, right? So, so how did he turn? How, how did he pivot? One of the things that fascinates me about uh, Benjamin Disraeli was his first uh, entrepreneurial activity, right? And you don't think of a prime minister as being entrepreneurial, but he was uh, 20 years old and he was in London and um, he did not come from a family of means. 
and he wanted to make some money and be entrepreneurial. And he met a couple of other guys in London. So he meets the guys in London and they both came from families who could be investors. One of them had a great idea and they decided they were going to create a new company and they were going to go thirdsies. They were each going to put in a third of the money and they were going to invest uh, together. And the, so Benjamin Disraeli's 20 years old and he was too embarrassed to tell these other two guys who he thought was cool were cool uh, that he didn't have the money to invest with them. So he borrowed the money, right? Without telling, without telling his parents, without telling anybody, he just borrowed the money. So these two had their own cash. He borrowed the money. And what did they invest in? They invested in real estate in Mexico. Now, most people don't remember that in the mid-1820s, there was a market for real estate investing for people in London, in Mexico. And that sounds crazy. And it turns out it was crazy because the thing that they invested in failed within six months. So they put, they put up all this money. It failed. That sometimes happens. They didn't read the prospectus properly. Um, but poor Benjamin Disraeli was really out on a limb because he had to pay back the loans. And it turns out that the fact that he was in debt really shit and, and was always insecure about it, was always insecure and, and was always behind in it, um, really shaped like his whole career between the age of 20 and 50. So there's a lot of stuff that he did. He, he did become a writer. He, he wrote a lot of books. He made some money on that. He was a publisher. He made some money on that. None of that is what we know him for, right? We know him as the prime minister. So what, so what did he do? He decided when he was like 35 or 40, he's going to run for public office. He's going to run for parliament. Why? Because he discovered that there was a law in England that if you were a member of parliament, you could not go bankrupt. Oh, yeah. Right? Member, me- Self-preservation. By, by law, could not go bankrupt. So it, so it kept the courts away from him. So he, he said, my God, I'm so struggling to pay this debt. This will keep the debtors away from me. Um, so he ran five times. And, he, and, and by the way, he borrowed money for each of the election campaigns because it, ex- it, it was expensive, which you're kind of hearing what happened to him. He, he kept getting more and more in debt. And then he finally won on the fifth time. Um, and between marrying very well twice, meaning meaning marrying people with sufficient money um, to help him personally and to and to pay his some of his debt and his bills, and his father helping him financially, and then because he was um, um, an ascendant politician, he had people supporting him financially. Um, that all helped him out a lot, and he and he was able to do what he in fact did very well which was to be a great politician and a great public speaker. Well, on that note, and I remember some, uh, some of the backstory that you told me a bit about this, I will encourage folks to go find that book. Really, of course, it's linked on our blog where you can learn about uh, that latter part that Jeff just mentioned of how he went on to record what is in history uh, one of the most brilliant speeches ever from the floor of parliament. We won't go into that now. We'll just leave you that little teaser. Uh, Jeff, I love uh, listening to you tell stories. I love hearing how you uh, pontificate on where the industry is going. And so often that seems like you're right and, uh, and it has worked out for you. I imagine I'm not the only one listening right now who would like to have this opportunity to chat with you. Where do you like to be found? How can folks reach out and connect with you? Uh, I'm really transparent. I'm just out there. Um, so find me on LinkedIn. I'll, uh, I'll be happy to link to you and um, we can chat there or go on from there. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we always link to the social media in our uh, episode show notes so folks can easily find it there. Well, Jeff, let's end today with a bold prediction. 
What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? No internal combustion engine cars by 2030 in the United States. The age of hydrocarbons is over. And it's not because of climate. It's because of complexity. Electric cars are much easier to operate and they work really, really, really well. So electricity, broadband, and security, right? We all just experienced the colonial pipeline. Electricity, broadband, and security are, are going to merge. And they're going to be one thing, not three things. Um, and that's, that's going to drive enormous growth uh, for everyone listening uh, to this podcast. I'm fascinated by this topic. Uh, in fact, when Costa Nicolau was on uh, now almost a couple of years ago, uh, before they were acquired Panelclaw, he predicted the emergence of the you know, 5G boom, essentially doing what you've said, connecting broadband and electricity. Uh, you're the first to suggest security. And I challenge the Suncast tribe. What do you think, what business opportunities are going to emerge as we see this coalescence of three different massive industries uh, merge together and technologies come in sync? You know, will it be blockchain? What technologies are really going to revolutionize the way that we uh, the way that we can conceive of how energy is used, disseminated, stored, protected. We've just experienced uh, the first real cybersecurity attack on our energy pipeline, as it were, here in the eastern seaboard of the United States. Jeff Weiss is executive chairman, co-founder of Distributed Sun, and it is always a pleasure to share the airwaves with you, my friend. You're welcome back on Suncast anytime. Thank you so much, Nico. It's great to be with you. Thank you. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap on this fascinating conversation with Jeff Weiss. I hope that you're as saturated and intrigued as I am. Jeff, for me, is, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a look at the long arc of how the technology industry is, in fact, informing the way that if you, if you like I do, you know, pont- pontificate how past industries can help us think about the way our industry, the clean energy revolution, the energy transition might look, this interview was instructive. <laughs> if you're eager to keep learning, as uh, Jeff uh, insinuated, then you, my fellow Philomath, Math, can go find all the resources, the book links and social media and everything else over on the blog in that episode notes page at mysuncast.com. Hey, since you're going to be hopping online, I would love it if you would share this episode with someone on LinkedIn. It's really a treat for Jeff and I to learn how this episode resonated with you. So what do you think? Who needs to hear this story today? Next week, we've got more coming on Community Solar, plus the founder of Grid Alternatives, Erica Mackey herself, finally makes her debut on Suncast. If you are subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen, then it'll pop right into your feed at 7 a.m. as usual on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And hey, if you're on Spotify and iTunes, I'd really appreciate you writing a quick review so others can find the show more easily. It takes a couple of minutes and it really would mean the world to me. We're at 94 ratings. Can you help us get to 100? Speaking of which, I'd like to shout out a recent five-star Apple review. Albrecht calls Suncast an audible gift. He says, Nico has a way of extracting information from his guests that brings out their humble, humorous, and human side in a gracious and fun manner to keep the discussion interesting. Hey, thank you so much, Albrecht. It means a ton to me that you took the extra time out of your day to leave that review. and. I'm sure that it has meant something for others who are looking to see if Suncast really is relevant for what they're looking for. Hey, lastly, thanks again to our sponsors and partners who help make 
this content free for you. You can learn more about them over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. It's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and climate champions twice a week, just like you, twice a week, every week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.